0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author, Monty Burke. Monty shares his passion for the outdoors and discusses his latest book, Lords of the Fly, which chronicles the hunt for world record tarpon in late 70s Homosassa, Florida. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, Please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode sponsored by the 21st Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. This year's event will be held on January 23rd and 24th in Doswell, Virginia and features water aisles and limited classes to promote social distancing. Please visit www.vaflyfishingfestival.com for the latest information on speakers, vendors, and classes. Now, on to our interview. Well, Monty, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks for having me on. Well, I really appreciate you carving some time out for me this afternoon, and one of the traditions that we have on the Articulate Flies, we always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: Mine is with a spin rod, uh, and I was with my dad in the Adirondacks uh, on a lake back when, before those lakes got too acidified, and they're not good at fishing, but I hooked a monster, a pike, uh, and I was probably seven years old. Um, and we fought it and fought it and it was about to break off. My dad jumped out of the canoe and lifted it up and threw it on the bank. Um, and pretty much from that point, I mean, this thing was monsters, like 30 inches long and pretty much from that point on, I've been, I've been a fisherman, an angler and just have absolutely loved it.
0: Yeah. Very cool. When did you get drawn to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: Uh, so we moved, so my, my grandfather was a fly fisherman. In fact, I, I still have some of his Orvis uh, bamboo rods, which are all warped right now, but they're very cool to look at. Uh, my father was a fly fisherman and my uncle was a fly fisherman. So it was kind of like, that's, you know, after you've got some of the spin stuff out of your system, you, you went right to a fly rod. And we moved to North Carolina when I was in fourth grade, lived on a farm and had a little pond in the back. And I think we moved there in like, march and i remember april or may going down with a fly rod and a popper and probably about a foot of leader and you know popping the thing through there in the bass or on the spawn and it was about as much fun as you could have i mean there's a big four or five pound large mouse crushing the big popper um and so that's sort of when i started to get really into it and it's never really ceased i mean kind of wherever i've lived i've gotten totally into the local scene i lived in dc for a little while and. Got really into the Tort Spring Run uh, in Pennsylvania and some of the Virginia Spring Creeks, really into the trout thing. And then, you know, when I moved to New York City 20-some-odd years ago, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to drive all the way to Catskills, which I did, and I love Catskills still. But I've actually found, surprisingly, that the fishing within the city uh, is incredible, and the fly fishing is incredible. I mean, it's it's a long season, April to December. we got stripers. we got wheatfish. we got bluefish. Uh, the albacore, false albacore about to come through the bonito are here right now. Um, it's tremendously fun, really exciting. Um, and I've really gotten into the saltwater game
0: here. Very neat. And, you know, you mentioned your family members fly fishing. Who are some of the other folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey?
1: Um, you know, I've been lucky because of my job. Uh, I've been able to fish with incredible anglers, uh, you know, Atlantic salmon anglers and tarpon anglers and uh, bonefish. You know, bonefish geniuses and all that sort of stuff. So I've had a lot of different influences. I would say definitely my father and my uncle uh, were the were the biggest influences. But I've been lucky enough to fish with some. You know, with Steve Huff and Andy Mill. And there's nothing quite like being on the uh, at the front of a boat, seeing a bunch of tarpon come down on the ocean side of the Keys, and having Andy Mill over your shoulder, being like, tighten up that cast a little bit, get down a little bit. You could shoot that under the wind right there. That one. That one. You know. So it, uh, it, I've been very very lucky um in that regard for sure.
0: Yeah, very neat. And, you know, you mentioned you kind of adapt to your fishing to where you live, but do you have a favorite species to chase on the fly?
1: Uh, I kind of feel like that's a little bit like asking if, which one of my three children is my favorite. Um, I, I, I very much are, are, love the one you with. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy fishing in Alabama bass ponds and catching Um You know, but if I had to narrow it down, I would I would say that tarpon and uh, Atlantic salmon would be my two favorite there's just something about those two fish their spirit uh you know the way they fight the way they take the places that you fish for them i think has a lot to do with it as well so i would you know, if i had to if you, if you put a gun to my head i would have to say those two uh uh or my would be the top ones.
0: yeah fair enough and you know interesting too i've been lucky to to interview quite a few authors on the podcast and i'm always interested in you know what made you become interested in writing
1: so I was always, always interested in, my uncle is a novelist, I was always kind of interested in it. I uh, didn't, you know, in college, I wrote a lot. Um, I didn't really, coming out of college, I didn't really have the balls to kind of go for it. It's a, you know, it was an intimidating thing to kind of just throw yourself into. Uh, and actually, I graduated from college and worked in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years at a nonprofit and um, thought that. You know the respectable and the right thing to do would be to apply to business school. Um, so I did, and I got into uh, business school at uh, Kellogg at Northwestern. And right at that same time, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I've been fishing La tort quite a bit, and the lore kind of got me there. I mean, it wasn't the fishing is good? It's not great anymore, but um, it's good enough to keep you interested. But it was the lore. It was the Vincent Marinero and all these Charlie Fox and all these. Ang- anglers of yesteryear who kind of came up with these cool innovations that we use today that really got me. And I remember I wrote a story about fishing. There was one guy left named Ed Shank who actually just passed away uh, about a year ago, um, kind of, of the old guard left. And I did—I just went, I said, hey, I want to interview you and do a story. I had no magazine to write for anything like that. I just called him up and he said, sure. So I fished with him uh, for a day and then wrote a story and I sent it off to Sporting Classics. Um, and I swear, it was within a week of getting my acceptance at business school, I got a letter back from uh, Chuck Wexler. I'll never forget, I still have the letter. And he said, I really liked your story. I'd like to buy it for $200. And I made uh, what uh, some people might say is the worst uh, financial decision of my life. I decided to forego business school and jump right into uh, writing. And I got a job uh, shortly after that. I got a job basically as a secretary at Sports of Field, which at the time was in New York, which is why I came to New York, um, and was a hunting and fishing magazine. Now it's a big game hunting magazine. But um, and that's sort of where I earned my chops. That was sort of journalism school. I had a lot of great editors there who sort of took me into the wing and, you know, showed me kind of how it was done and uh, took a little detour to Forbes for 15 or 16 years. But, um, you know, I, I, they always say the old adage in journalism is right about what you know and about what you love and um you know i'm by no means i have a phd in fishing but i love it and so uh it's been a very fun thing to write about
0: very neat and you know maybe this is a little bit different um because you write more non-fiction but i'm always interested to talk to authors and writers and hear how they like to write like i find some guys you know, go hold themselves up for a few days and punch out a lot of content. And other people are, you know, they get up at 430 in the morning and they drink coffee and they write for two or three hours and they go and do the rest of their day. How do you like to skin the cat?
1: So it's, it just depends. I mean, I think ideally, so if we're talking about a book, ideally what, you know, let's say we break it into a year, I would report for six months and then like hold myself up for as much as I can hold myself up for six months and just, just write and write, like, many, many hours during the day. Uh, corona put a little kink in all of that. I started, for some odd reason, getting up at, like, 4.30, or I think it was, well, I had to teach the kids virtual, you know, I had to kind of watch the the kids' virtual schooling during the day, so I started getting up really early and, and you know, mainlining coffee and writing for a couple hours before they woke up. So I found, actually, I always thought that I had to have, I have a little, you know, basically my uh, office here in Brooklyn where I've written all my books and lots of uh, magazine stories. And I always thought, well, it has to be pristine. No one could be in the house. Like I've got to do it this way and I've got to have my, my quiet time and all that kind of stuff, which is true. I prefer that. But I, what I've found over Corona is that you, you just kind of have to adapt and adjust sometimes. So, you know, I've got a, a new puppy in here, three kids coming in all the time and you know, you just, you just crank it out when you can. So it, it's changing. I think ideally though, I'd like to just sit down and crank it up, you know, really crank and sort of have a, a pretty strong routine, whether that's for magazine stories or books.
0: Got it. And, you know, what are some of the unique challenges to writing nonfiction?
1: Um, well, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't always go the way you think it's going to go. I guess that's one. You know, a novelist can kind of, if something in the, in the arc of the narrative arc is going, they can, they can control that. You can't control that with nonfiction, which is kind of a funny thing. I mean, I, I think novelists are Magicians, I can't imagine, uh, you know, good novelists, just, you know, coming up with all that stuff in your head. It's inc- it's incredible, what the worlds they come up with. But with nonfiction, you kind of have to follow the story, and it doesn't always go the way you think. And in fact, with with books, I've always found it really interesting that every so you write a proposal to sell it to the publisher, and I always look back at the proposal when I'm done with the book and be like, man, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. You know, so it's <laughs> about diving in and interviewing people and then you know one of the main things i learned one of the great things i learned when i was at forbes when you get there they make you fact check for like six months um just pure fact checking so all the big wigs are writing these big stories about coca-cola or google or whatever and you have to fact check every line um and that was as painful as it was that was a, a really great exercise in learning how to make sure that things are correct um, and so that's, you know, that I, I wouldn't call that a unique challenge. I think, you know, everyone should do that, whether you're writing nonfiction or fiction, really. I mean, if you're talking about stuff that's factual, but, uh, you know, again, that's those, the facts sometimes are out of your hands. I mean, you can have a story that looks perfect if so and so does this, and you think that person is going to do that, then you find out after talking to them they didn't do it. So you got to kind of change your, change the whole thing, but that's just the way, that's the way it goes. So it's super fun, um, super fun.
0: Yeah, got it. And you know, you, you love the outdoors, you love hunting and fishing, you know, there's some of that content in Fords, but that's not really, you know, what they're known as. You've been there for a while. How did you create more space for yourself to write more sporting and outdoor content?
1: You you, you sound like one of my editors would sat me down after I've been there for about 11 years and I'm like, how do you get away with this stuff? I mean, it's pretty crazy what the trips are. I mean, I went fishing in Canada with Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, I got sent to Russia for 10 days to fish with this reclusive millionaire who bought all these all this water there. And I mean, it's, it's I, I don't exactly know how I got away with it, um, uh, but it was damn fun. Um, so, you know, the basic premise was that it had to have, it had to, it had to be a profile of, of a, of a, you know, a business person or, a, uh, you know, someone in the Forbes 400 or something like that. So, you know, it just so happens that those people tend to like the fly fish and they fly fish in really cool places. So, um, you know, if it, if the opportunity ever presented itself, uh, I'd certainly jumped on sort of a, you know, a fishing, uh, related, uh, venture. i, I gave give you one example. That was a, the, the, uh, the CEO of rich food products, which is this Buffalo company that basically makes, you know, McDonald's hamburger buns, uh, you know and it, they're just everywhere rich food products you wouldn't know it but they they you know they're the ones who furnish all the buns for fast food restaurants and he i was assigned to a profile on him i called him up and he said yeah you know i've read some of your stuff you like fishing and he's like let's go um let's go flatfish fish for um for marlin out in new jersey and i was like that sounds good to me so a lot of it was just about you know pursuing people who i knew were kind of interested in fishing and it's a it's a great way to get to know someone uh, I, or to profile someone i'll put it that way you you can learn a lot for instance to learn a lot about Yvonne Shenard um on the trip we took to labrador together and you just saw kind of how stubborn he was and how uh inventive he was on the water he would try different techniques and try you know stand in different spots than you know the, the guides would be like yep stand here he said no i want to actually go over here and you could kind of like it's cool to see sort of someone's personality and uh, through and I think fly fishing is a great vector for that, so it, it worked out.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. While you're while you're are telling me that, it makes me think about you know one of the things I generally see out in the field with people is how they deal with adversity.
1: Yep, yep, for sure when a sudden rainstorm comes up or something
0: yeah or even worse um yeah, yeah. but uh you know it's interesting too because you've been with forbes for quite a while but i know that you're you know i've seen your work in the drake and garden and gun and lots of other you know outdoor oriented publications you know how do you juggle having so many masters uh
1: you know i, I generally i just love the editors i work for i mean Tom at the Drake, I think, is a great editor. Uh, David Benedetto at Guardian Gun is a great editor, and he's become a great friend. And, um, you know, I mean, you just, you just, every once in a while you have to say no, but when someone comes to you and says, hey, do you have an idea, or "Hey, here's an idea for you. Um, you know, is, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much full-time freelance. I'm a contributor now at Forbes, too. Um, so, yeah, you know, you kind of jump at the opportunities um, when you can do them. But I think a lot of this journalism game is, if you're on the, you know, if you're a writer is about finding an editor who you like, uh, and whose interests are are sort of like yours and who, who edits really well. I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the, that's, those are the keys. And I've, I've been very, very lucky to, to find, uh, you know, people who are really at the top of the game. And again, uh, you know, I, I think the Drake is fantastic. I think Garden gun is absolutely fantastic. So, um, um, I've just been very lucky there,
0: really. Yeah. Very neat. And I guess, you know, the, the biggest news in your writing life is I guess about a week ago or so you released Lords of the Fly and, mm-hmm. and I was really curious to kind of, you know, you know, we were talking about you write proposals to publishers, kind of what was the genesis for writing the book?
1: So it was really interesting because I I was coming off writing two books about uh football coaches and my agent and, and the editors I work with were very excited about uh, those books because they're, you know, they, they just have a broader base. I mean, the, the the last one I did was about Nick Saban in Alabama. And obviously there are a lot of people who are interested in Nick Saban in Alabama, more so than fishing. So, um, when I kind of presented this idea, they were sort of like raised eyebrow, like really? And then I kind of talked to him about it, told him about it. And they, I think they saw how passionate I was about it. And they said, sure, let's do it. And I'm damn glad we did. Cause it was super absolute joy to, to work on. But, um, so that idea was, it's kind of a, it was a, it came from a magazine story. It started that way, I guess. You Back in 2010 or 2011, I can't remember, I was assigned by Garden Gun to go do a story on a guide named Steve Huff, uh, who's now in Everglades City, but's kind of been in the keys. And uh, it was a profile and they actually titled it The Greatest Fishing Guide Alive. And he argued, he maybe inarguably, is the greatest fishing guide alive right now, just in terms of records and people he's guided and all the innovations he's had and steve and i became pretty good friends and um uh i would return and i went back every year to go f- to fish with him and you know on the water and off the water he would sometimes mention this word homo sassa. i had no idea what you know where Home Sassa was i didn't really know what it was It town it turned out to be a town 70 miles north of tampa and the, but the word just sounded kind of sounded enchanted sounded poetic and he would tell me about this crazy period that he was involved in in the late 70s and early 80s, when, you know, literally all of the great, the best fly fishermen in the world at the time and the best guys in the world at the time were all there at the same time after the same goal, which was the world record tarpon. So you had people like, I mean, Lefty Cray was there for a little while, Stu App was there, Ted Williams, Billy Pate. Chico Fernandez came in and out. Flip Pallet was there for a little while. I mean, the list kind of Tom Evans, but this guy kind of goes on and on. So it was just I just loved hearing. So I would know, follow up and ask questions about it. He would tell me stories, crazy stories about the wild on what happened on the water, the wild stuff that happened on the water, but also the wild stuff that happened off the water. Um, and so uh, that kind of stuck with me. And then a couple of years later, I was assigned to do a story on Andy Bell. And uh, went down to the Keys and fished with Andy and his son, Nicky. And, you know, Andy also, he'd, although he'd been a home assassin, he wasn't kind of part of that scene, but he knew all those guys. And he said, you know, you got to write about this era. It's, you know, disappearing. These guys are getting older. And it was fascinating, all this kind of stuff, too. And I sort of said, yeah, that sounds, like, you know, that sounds cool. I wasn't like totally sold. And then I think it was sometime in 2018, Andy called and said, you got to do this. And I'm going to put you in touch with this guy, Tom Evans. Uh, who's 82 years old and uh, just call, just interview him and see what you think. So uh, I actually drove up to Vermont where Tom Evans is now and sat down with him for a day and just talked about homophobia and talked about fishing for the world record and he's he's owned it seven times. He's you know he sort of was unknown to me to a certain degree. I mean I'd heard the name but I didn't realize the sort of significance of the name. So he's one of the great big tarpon anglers fly of all time, and um, after that meeting with Tom, I drove home, and I said, holy crap, this is amazing. This is an amazing story, and it's, you know, not only if you, not only if I just talk about that little part in Homosassa, but also write about sort of what led up to that moment in time, which is arguably the, the sort of apex of fly fishing in saltwater, maybe the apex of fly fishing, and, and, you know, a time that had never been seen before, and a time certainly will never be seen again, and then also write about kind of what happened after Homosassa. And, um, you know, one of the great blissful things about diving into a subject like this is you realize how connected things are. I didn't realize that, for instance, that Chico Fernandez and Flip Pallet were somehow connected to Sassa. I didn't realize how, you know, how Chico and Flip were also connected to Tom McGuane and Jim Harrison, those guys who were down in the keys filming that cool movie and making tarpon fishing look so cool. You know, I didn't realize how Billy Pate and Tom Evans were connected to the, ang- the, you know, the guides and the anglers of today, like Nathaniel Linville and David Mangum and these incredible, innovative guides now. So uh, I think it was Chekhov who wrote something like, you know, if you, sh- if you lift one end of the story, you- the other side shakes, basically. This kind of this cool uh, narrative arc that went through this whole, went through this whole book. That, um, and it was just, you know, it was just really, really cool. Um, so that was sort of the that was a long-winded answer to the genesis of it. But that's kind of how it happened. And then I basically took about a year and a half to do the whole thing. I reported it. We'd go to, went to Homosassa three or four times, um, went to the Keys, went to the Everglades, uh, did one side trip to Montana to hunt down McGuane and, and, um, and get, his, get his story. So uh, it, was just, it was just so cool. I mean, the reporting was cool what a great excuse to interview Stu Aft and interview Chico Fernandez and Flip Pallet. And then the writing was really cool, but it just, the whole, I just, you know, it just was so fun. It was so fun.
0: Very, very neat. And, you know, for our listeners that aren't, uh, haven't had a chance to go chase Tarpon on the fly. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the challenges that probably lead to the addiction to kind of chase world record Tarpon?
1: I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think it's the, I think it's the coolest thing you can do with a fly rod. I mean, it's just, you know, I remember hooking my very first one with Steve Huff and I don't know if it, I'm don't sure you've seen those awesome videos that are sent around on YouTube. Sometimes of those little kids hooking their first fish and that look on their face of like complete joy, but also like utter astonishment. Like they can't believe that there's a wriggling live thing at the other end. And I think if you multiply that by, you know, a thousand, that's what it's like to, to hook a tarpon, I mean it's just just an incredible, incredible experience. Totally mind clearing. I mean, I think we we all seek in our obsessions and our you know something that kind of clears our mind, so we don't think about the election or coronavirus or any of that kind of stuff. Right? I mean, that's why that's why fishing's appealing in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that the tarpon does the best job of clearing the mind. I mean, when, the, the hook set is unbelievable. The leaps, the jumps, the fight. Uh, you know, you actually have to unlike a trout or something like that you actually have to fight back which i always found really interesting um and then you know for these so but so that's just sort of of the normal angler uh experience for these guys who were after these this this world record and and not many of them there's not many world record chasers uh around anymore i think people become a little more conservation minded of course you have to kill a tarpon to enter it and i think people find that not quite they kind of find a little more distasteful but these guys were practicing, you know, at a much higher level. I mean, they're they're uh, using a- anywhere from 16 pound to 12 pound or 8 pound tippet, first of all, which is crazy. And catching, I mean, the 12 pound record is 190, almost 195 pounds. Um, so the skill and the art of that um, is just unreal. Uh, maybe more than that, the dedication is crazy. I mean, you you know. They would go, some of these guys, Tom Evans would go some seasons in Homosassa, you know, and lose every fish he hooked or not see fish for a week. You know, stand, literally stand in the bow, bob up and down, looking, staring over an empty sea. So as Tom Evans put it, he said, you know, for him anyway, it was, it took a toll. It took a a physical toll. It took a financial toll because, of course, you know, angling for 30 days in a row for tarpon is not a cheap thing. Uh, and it took a mental toll. And he, you know, he said that he could handle the physical toll, toll. He'd been an ex football player, so he was ready for that. Uh, he could handle the financial toll. He had made some good money in the stock market. Um, but it was the mental thing that was the hardest. It was the concentration. It was the, you know, because you never know which shot, when the shot's going to happen, you never know which one's going to be the the world record. Um, he said that was the, that was the one that kind of drove him batshit crazy. Um, and that's, I think, what a lot of people who don't like, chasing the world record or who did it for a little while and didn't want to, didn't it just begged off where it was because of that sort of mental, just the mental fortitude it took just to stand out there day after day, after day, after day, and, and, you know, lose fish after fish, break rods, break lines, you know, all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. It's kind of interesting too. Cause you know, I imagine a lot of those guys were pretty type A. Right. You know, in terms of how they approach the non-fishing parts of their life. And, you know, I always kind of think about the challenge of, you know, one of the things that fishing teaches you, you have to take what the water is going to give you.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, and they're, you're right. So like in their in their other lives, they weren't they were these were particularly in that era were relatively wealthy or successful folks. And uh, yeah, they were they were used to <laughs> they're used to having things their their way. So they sort of had to bend that part of their personality to the, the tarpon was going to tell them what to do, pretty much.
0: Yeah. And, and as you mentioned earlier in the interview, you know, you did a lot of interviews that to to kind of research and prepare for the book. Do you have any of them that stand out any more than any of the others?
1: I mean, not I mean, it was just, you know, it's a thrill to walk into Stu Rapp's house in Isle Morada, That which you know, is a lifelong you know, fishing geek, uh, fly fishing geek, like me, that was just kind of a thrilling thing to do. Um, but you know, they they were all most. You know, I did probably eighty percent of them in person. The ones on the phone, you know, sometimes by necessity you have to do that. But they they were all cool. I mean, it's just it's it. What you find is it's sort of like a, a tribe. Someone might call it a cult, but you know, this tarpon thing is like you can just tell when when it's hooked somebody. And, and you can tell by their enthusiasm when they, when they talk to you, um, you know, it's just that enthusiasm is really infectious. And so it, it got me kind of even more pumped up, but I mean, it was fun. I mean, I did some of them on a boat, like Steve Huff I interviewed, uh, on a boat, uh, with Tom Evans. I was on the boat with the, with his crew for, I don't know, 20 days, at least, um, the flip palette and I had a bison burger in his house. I mean, it, you know, they're just, they're, they're memories that I'll always have of, uh, you know, talking to people that I've, you know, been reading about since I was thirteen years old, uh, and people who, you know, it's just really cool. It's like a baseball fan getting to, you know, interview Derek Jeter and Mike Trout, and you know, it's just cool. It's, as a fan, it was very cool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so Lord Lords of the Fly is set kind of in the. Homasassa, kind of in the late seventies, early eighties. You know, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the state of the tarpon fishery there today? And you know, you mentioned that people are not really chasing uh, world records as much as they used to because they don't want to kill the fish. Yep. But it'd be kind yep. of interesting to kind of get in the time machine and come forward and kind of learn a little bit more about what the fishery is like today.
1: Yeah, so I write about that because it was really interesting. So it it got uh, during this period. You know, one fun thing to research was all the attention it got. It got, you know, the New York Times wrote a story about this chase. Sports Illustrator wrote a great story about all these guys down here, down there. Uh, uh, ABC did a, a special on it. Uh, 3M, which owned Scientific Angers at the time, did a whole movie about it. Like, it was just really kind of missing how much attention it received. And of course, with all that attention, more people heard about it. People like Bobby Orr and Jack Nicholas were like, we're going to go and catch it. So people just started parachuting in and it's not a huge. I mean, it's a you know, it's, it's fifteen to twenty miles of flat, basically. But you know, when you have two hundred boats out there, uh, you know, it can seem a little bit crowded. So, you know, one of the reasons I think the tarpon, basically Homosassa, they, they biologists think anyway, had a certain subset of very, very large tarpon. They were shorter, but they were hugely fat. Uh, that came to Homosassa, and those tarpon started to go away. And I, part of the reason is the crowds. And just don't like boats. They just get annoyed and they'll just leave and go somewhere else. But at the bigger reason um, for the decline and the, the fish there is the problems with the fresh water. So that's the springs coast. Um, and it has four huge, going into Homosassa Bay, there are four big spring-fed rivers, rivers that go in there, but also just you know hundreds of other springs that feed into it. And you know that aquifer has just been abused. I mean, you know there is very little regulation about who can tap into that Aquifer is basically like just a big, the state and the real estate around it has become a huge straw and they drink up all the water. And so that doesn't go into the bay. And uh, it sounds funny when you think, oh, freshwater shouldn't mean that much. But it does because it's what keeps the mangroves alive, which is very important for, uh, for its species. Um, and also the the freshwater is actually what keeps the blue crabs, which were once so abundant there that uh, Steve Up was telling me he, would put your, he put his pole down. He could feel them clicking on the pole. They were everywhere. And every tarpon they caught, you know, would just gorge, just gorge a bunch of blue crabs all over the boat. Um, and so, you know, once the, the water quality has just gone down, 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 since the starting in the 70s uh, to the point now where the, you know, the salinity actually goes up into the rivers. And so I think when you put that together with the crowds, um, you know, the tarpon just left. There wasn't, the, they didn't have enough food to eat there uh it, they were annoyed when they got there um and so they pretty much left now it's a big mystery about where they went i mean tarpon lived to 70 80 years so some of those fish even some of the fish that back in the 70s or theoretically could still be around uh, you know there's lots of people some people think they went to boca grande some people think they're now in the panhandle but it's it's a it's a real shame uh you know that was sort of the the cathedral, the, the sort of Yankee Stadium of, of saltwater fly fishing, and now it's empty. There's no team that plays there really anymore. I mean, it's, it's just been kind of destroyed really through things that could have been avoided, uh, really, through negligence. Um, you know, there's still enough big fish that come through every year. There's, a couple, there's always one or two really great days when, you know, a lot of there's big strings of huge fish coming in, and that keeps – some people's hopes alive. It makes everyone feel like for at least a day or two things are going to be like they were. But when you talk to these old timers who were there, you know, they would see, you know, Steve puff says 10,000 fish on the flat, 10,000 fish, just happy and, you know, burbling around. Um, and you certainly don't, you know, in my year there, my two or three years I've been there, you don't see 10,000 fish. You see like a dozen, maybe. I mean, so it's, it's, it's pretty sad. And I, a little poignant and, um, You know, I think that was one of the things I wanted to really get across in the book was that, you know, we got to take care of this stuff if we care about it. Um, You know, we should be paying more attention to these kind of things because I think Homestasa really could be seen as a microcosm for the state of Florida and really maybe a microcosm for the state of the way that we treat our natural resources all over the country and maybe even the world.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I sometimes think that uh, we have a tendency to love things to death.
1: Yep. Yep. And also, you know, you hear this term all the time, recency bias, um, which, you know, like a lot of other buzzwords can sound a little icky, but it's real, it's really true. I mean, I, you know, when I went to the, when I've been in the Keys and tarpon fish and you see all those tarpon going by, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. When I first went to Homosassa and I saw these giant, you know, 150 pound, 180 pound tarpon, I saw maybe three or four and I was like, oh my God, this is just incredible. But of course, you know, my baseline is so, different from people who were there even like 20 years before but particularly people who were there in the 70s And it, you know it's just kind of an interesting interesting phenomena that um you know our recency bias by, by i think allows us to sort of become accustomed to the fall sort of you know accustomed to the fall of species because we don't we don't know any better
0: yeah absolutely and, and you know so if someone wants to learn more about Sassa and the fishery there you know where can they find lords of the fly monty
1: uh, it's on Amazon, of course. Um, it's on, there's a great, uh, website called IndieBound, uh, which will help you find it at your local independent bookstore. Um, and it sh- it's in Barnes and Noble and it's pretty much, as they say, anywhere where books are sold.
0: <laughs> there you go. And, you know, obviously COVID has impacted so many things in our life and I'm sure it impacted the, your, the rollout of the book. Um, Do you have appearances scheduled in 2021 to promote the book and maybe give folks a chance to spend some time with you and get a copy signed?
1: Um, You know, not as of yet. And you're right, it is. It's very strange. And what was strange for me is to be home for launch day. Usually, you know, for the Nick Saban book, I was in Alabama, Barnstorm in the State. For uh, all my other books, I haven't been home for launch day. You're usually out at a bookstore signing and you're. Doing you know all sorts of kind of in person things and I haven't been able to do that this time which is which is really a bummer it's so much fun to go around and uh, just talk to people I miss that uh, terribly so you know we've supplemented that with you know podcasts like this and um, uh, you know lots of Zoom calls and all that kind of stuff too but uh, yeah I mean so I, I as of right now we've uh, put everything on hold so I don't really know but if there's an opportunity to get on the road and, and you know, go to some bookstores and go to some flash shops. Um, I'm certainly going to take it.
0: Yeah. And for folks that want to track that and kind of, you know, generally follow your adventures, where should they uh, look on social media and on the internet?
1: Um, I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm not, very re- I did my first Instagram post the other day, so I'm not very good at that, but I'm on Instagram. <laughs> um, I'm on tw- as a journalist, I use Twitter a lot more. So Twitter is one spot, uh, and Facebook as well. And, uh, I also have a website, just com, but I don't usually post much new stuff on that, but, um, that's a good way, you know, to get my email address or whatever. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's the way.
0: Well, cool. Well, listen, I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes and Monty, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me this afternoon.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Marvin. I really
0: appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. Please remember to check out www.vaflyfishingfestival.com for all of the event details. Tight lines, everybody.